Good morning. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, that is where we will be looking most closely. While you turn there, I'm going to open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for providing us with your word, providing with us with all that you do provide for us. Uh, This morning, I pray that you will help me to communicate what your word is saying, uh, and that I will not uh, communicate anything of my own thoughts or anything incorrect, uh, that you will uh, guide not only my speaking, but also the hearing here, that uh, anything I say incorrectly will be forgotten, and that only your word and the truth of it will remain. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So, John chapter 2, we're going to look at uh, verses, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And since it is a delightfully small passage compared to what sometimes we have, we're going to start by reading the whole thing. Maybe we'll read it a couple times by the, by the end of this. But let's begin by reading the whole thing, the first 11 verses of John chapter 2. On the third day... A wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six Stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from though the servants who had drawn the water knew it. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory, and his disciples believed him. Now, one thing we want to keep in mind as we look at this story is in verse 11 here, it says, Jesus performed this first sign. Some translations will say miracles, but that uh, does understate the, the purpose of this word, sign. Uh, and what is that a sign of? If we see a sign that it's it, it indicating something, it has a purpose and a meaning. John tells us this at the end of his uh, gospel in chapter 20. Uh, verse 30 and 31, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the Christ is a term that means anointed one or chosen one. It's the Greek equivalent of the word we hear, Messiah. The Old Testament contains hundreds of passages that would promise a coming Messiah. A common one we hear is in Isaiah 61 that he would come and proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening 
of the prison to those who are bound. The New Testament comes and reveals more about what the Messiah would be and what the Christ would be like. And we see that in the person of Christ and in His miracles. Uh, and namely, the, the, the deliverance from power, from the power and penalty of sin. Romans 6.23, uh, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, uh, thinking of this now, that this story, this first sign is intended to communicate that uh, Jesus is the Christ. Let's, let's look at some of these verses a little more closely now and bear that in mind. The first uh, three verses there, at the end of the, those verses we have this scene, uh, a wedding setting, which we, we can't miss that uh, right off the bat, that in the Old Testament, God is considered the husband of Israel. In the New Testament, we see Jesus as the bridegroom of the church, the church considered to be the bride of Christ. And Mary says, they have no wine, which is a much more serious problem in the context than we might pick up on, right? A minor inconvenience here. Uh, a wedding now today that maybe they run out of food or wine. But in a wedding festival of this day, which would very likely span several days, it was a dramatic and shameful social mistake to run out of wine. It was even it even had legal implications. The guests of the wedding could sue the bridegroom for running out of wine. The bridegroom has spent... Uh, uh, probably upwards of a year preparing and getting his uh, house in order and acquiring what was necessary to prove that he could provide for his bride and he runs out of wine at the wedding. So why does Mary bring this up to Jesus? We hear that this is the first sign that Jesus performed. Had he been doing miracles for Mary? Probably not. We don't have that written in the scripture. This is called the first sign. It's likely that she had seen a change in Jesus' behavior. He had recently been baptized. He was now gathering followers. She had some some inkling of of what he would do and what he would be, uh, although she probably didn't quite fully and clearly understand who he was and what uh, was a part of his or what to be part of his ministry. Uh, And I like what John MacArthur says here: uh, a much simpler answer that Mary had been with Jesus his whole life. She never had a problem for which Jesus didn't have the perfect, most wise solution ever at home. Any issue, uh, uh, any, any squeaky furniture, any dilemma, Jesus would always have the perfect, perfect solution. Absolutely flawless in its wisdom. And so Mary sees this dramatic problem and very likely would just go to Jesus and say, they have no wine. Here is the problem. which is a good uh, lesson for us as well. How do we come to Christ, right? Uh, Mary doesn't come to Christ and say, Jesus, they have no more wine. Here's what you should do, right? She comes to him and says, they have no wine. Jesus, here's the problem, right? With no expectation uh, or high expectations, but no directions on what he should do. She goes directly to Christ quickly as soon as she recognizes the problem and presents it to him. And his response may seem a little strange to us. In verse 4, he says, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
Now, this may, especially modern times, sound insulting. Woman, right? But we know Jesus had no sin. So, of course, he was not insulting his mother here. But he was being blunt. And what we can agree on, despite there's many commentaries talking about what he was trying to communicate using the word woman, what we can be sure of is that it was not uh, an intimate term, right? He's not referring to uh, my mother, right? He's not referring to this woman that has special access to him. It is a non-intimate term. He's starting to distance himself from human relationships. Uh, when he was younger and um, disappeared into the temple, he told his mother that, didn't you know I had to be about my father's work, my heavenly father's work? So now as his ministry is coming into fruition, he's gathered his followers, he's been baptized, he begins to have this distancing language. Not a disrespectful language, but a, a non-intimate language. And literally, the, the phrase, what does your concern have to do with me, would be translated, what to you and to me. I think there's a couple possible meanings there. One is, this is uh, the bridegroom's problem, is it not? He was supposed to provide the wine. So what is this to you? What is this to me? But also, what to you and to me, meaning, uh, what, what do the problems that you have have to do with the problems that I have? Again, this distancing of himself. And he goes on to say, my hour has not yet come. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, the hour that Christ refers to is his hour of death. The coming death that he would suffer on the cross. It seems like a pretty big leap in logic, right? To be told, there's no wine. And he said, why does that bother me? I'm not supposed to die yet. Right? It seems like a strange leap in logic. And we'll look more closely at it in a moment, but... Um, I think the idea here is that he was not prepared to do anything um, overt and loud and noisy to declare who he was at this point in time because he had much to do before he would reach that point in his ministry. Now, he tells her, uh, what does this problem have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And she, in verse 5, doesn't react as the way we might imagine her, uh, you know, scoffing off or, or brooding away. But she just turns to the servants and she says, whatever he says to you, do it. Now again, I don't know the full extent of what Mary might have uh, known that Jesus was capable of or known about his power. But all she knows for sure is that, again, whatever he says is going to be the, the perfect solution. So whatever he says, just do it. She doesn't know what he will do, just that he can. And she doesn't even know if he will, will do the thing, at least not from the text we have here. He doesn't say, you got it, right? All he says is, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time yet. So she still doesn't even know uh, if he's going to grant the specific request that she is implying, but she still says, do whatever he says, right? Again, for us. Doing whatever Christ says. We know that He can. We don't know if He will. The things that we ask for. But that should not impact our response to Christ and the way that we behave towards Him and towards the things that He has for us to do. Whatever He says, we will do it. And that is where, in His will, we will see the fruit of His plans for us. So in, in verse 6, uh, six water pots of stone... 
according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, these pots were made of stone. That's a key point in indicating what they were used for. Uh, clay pots, wood pots, there were many different types of pots, and they could all be destroyed for various reasons under the old uh, law if they became impure. A stone pot would not become impure. It was used to purify other things. Very likely it was used for the washing of hands or at a, a long wedding feast like this, the washing of various utensils and cups and plates and bowls. Uh, and it was used uh, for this ritual cleansing, right? The manner of purification of the Jews. It was a an outward display of cleansing of ritual cleanliness. So Jesus says, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast or the chief servant. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now, the water becoming Wine is a miracle. Uh, It always amazes me when I hear skeptics pick and choose and question little various miracles of Christ. Like, do you really think Jesus could change water to wine? Right? He he literally spoke every single thing into existence out of nothing. Of course, he could change water to wine. Right? Why why would that be the, the 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 stumbling block for you that he would change water to wine? Of course, he could. And I think another. A minor miracle we see here is that the servants were obeying him, right? He pours water into this bathtub and he says, now go give it to the head of the feast. And they say, okay, right? And not only that, when does the water change to wine? We don't know for sure, but it does say uh, the servants who had drawn the water knew. So he fills these these pretty gross pots full of water and it says they drew out the water Right, whether that's into a cup or whatever, so it's still water at this point, and they take it and they give it to the master of the feast. Again, implications abound for us, right? At what point do we falter in obeying the Lord? Right? If he had filled these pots up and said, All right, take it to the, the chief of the feast, and we went over and, and the servants would see, look at this. Gorgeous, rich wine. This will be excellent. It's amazing. But no, when they drew it out, it was still water. They were obeying him even when it made no sense to obey him. All the way through to, to giving that cup. I don't know if they saw it change or if it was they were wincing as they handed it to him. But they obeyed Christ all the way through. And how does he react? The chief of the feast, uh, verses 10 and 11. He said to, uh, or he calls, he goes to the bridegroom. And in verses 10 and 11, he says, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, which doesn't necessarily mean they were drunk, I'm guessing they were, but it means they had had their in a satisfactory amount, then they bring out the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Uh, his disciples believed in him, right? These people that had already declared that he was the Messiah. They see this sign, this performance of Jesus, and it says they believed in him. 
once we have come to Christ and accepted Christ and believe in who Christ is, the more we learn of Christ and the more we see of Christ should continue to deepen our belief and our amazement and our infatuation with Him. But this miracle is more than simply a transformation uh, or, or, or a display of power, right? It's a sign, not just a miracle. It's a sign showing that He is the Christ, right? Not just that He is a, a powerful figure or some sort of magician, but that He is the Christ. In John chapter 1, uh, verses 15 and 17, 15 through 17, it says, John bore witness of Him, Jesus, and cried out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we see this picture. Jesus turns water to wine, and the head of the feast says, You have saved the best for last. Normally the best comes out first, and then the inferior, but you've given the superior after. And John specifies here in the previous chapter, the covenant of the law with its rituals and its inferior sanctification came through Moses, but now a superior covenant of grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. So what does that term covenant mean? In the Old Testament, uh, shortly after the Israelites were, were saved from slavery in Egypt, Moses, uh, under the inspiration and direction of God, explains to the Israelites this covenant, right? This if-then covenant. In Exodus 19, he says, Now therefore, speaking uh, uh, God's, God's commands to the Israelites here, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But in a covenant, in in this Old Testament law covenant, there was also a negative, a consequence. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, If you turn your hearts away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. So the law, this system of, uh, of rituals and obedience that God, came, uh, God brought, and we'll look a little bit more at why He brought that and what its purpose was, uh, has this dramatic negative consequence. And God had always promised uh, uh, that a new covenant would be coming. In Jeremiah 31, It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. The covenant with Moses. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And reading through the New Testament, we see that this was Jesus' purpose. 
to come, to die on the cross, to offer forgiveness once and for all through His blood. And how do we know that's the, the covenant? 1 Corinthians 11. Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, He took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Right? This cup, a cup of wine, symbolizing his blood, the new covenant, his death. The book of Hebrews has a tremendous number of comparisons between the old, uh, the old way of the Mosaic law and the new way of Christ's coming. And I'll read a few of those to you. All, it's through seven, chapter seven, eight, nine, ten. I'll just, I'll jump around a little bit here. Uh, in the old covenant, there were, uh, priests, and many of those priests did an excellent job. They were, uh, admirable. They were worth looking at. But, Jesus is even, uh, superior to them. He comes, it says, has a better, has become a, a surety of a better covenant. It's called a better covenant. Uh, there were many priests in the Old Covenant because they were prevented by death from continuing. There had to be a lot of priests because they kept dying. The New Covenant. Jesus continues forever. He is able to save, uh, and because of that, He is able to save to the uttermost since He always lives to make intercession for them. Right? Christ who died, shedding His blood, bringing in a new covenant, now resurrected, always living to make intercession. The old priests daily offered sacrifices for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. Jesus offered once for all when He offered up Himself. The old covenant had blood of many animals, bulls and goats and cows, and it would uh, temporarily and partially sanctify. But it says the blood of Christ... It was able to obtain eternal, right? Permanent, eternal redemption that can cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Now, for anyone that's, has not come, uh, to Christ and is not familiar with the Bible, I think all of this talk about blood is a little bit strange. And why is blood so much involved? And we hear, a lot of old pagan religions with people sacrificing to angry gods to appease them and and it just seems creepy and archaic. But the Bible explains a little bit about that. In, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, it says, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And then in Hebrews, there's more of an explanation. For where there is a testament... There must also be of necessity the death of a testator. Testator, For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant, right? The old covenant by Moses, not even the first one was given without blood. For when Moses had spoken all of the precepts to the people, right? When Moses gave that law, he took the blood of calves and goats. And he sprinkled it on the people. So back in that original, one of those texts we read, when Moses is presenting the covenant to the people, uh, there has been a sacrifice of bulls. The blood was put into uh, basins. The law was read to the people. They were sprinkled with blood. This symbol of death 
right, symbolizing uh, uh, the life of the flesh, was always part of covenant. And Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness of sins. But of that old covenant, the same continual sacrifices, again, according to Hebrews, could never make those who approached perfect. Because they did not remove, this is a word we read a moment ago, um, that the blood of Christ can cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve a living God. And the old one uh, could not remove the consciousness of sins. Because in those sacrifices, repeated over and over, there was a reminder of sin every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take sins away. But in the new covenant, Christ coming, His death, His blood, by one offering, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So Jesus comes. His blood is the new covenant. He tells us to remember that covenant with the fruit of the vine. He gives to His disciples the wine and says, This cup is the covenant of My new blood. It is far superior So back in our text here in John, the wine ran out. The word there, it's not a stretch to say that the word there means inferior or to fall short. The wine has fallen short. And so Jesus says to his mother, now we can think about this a little bit more. She says, the wine's run out. And he says, why does that matter to me? It's not my time to die yet. The implication, I think, is to say, it's not my time to die on the cross, but what I will do is I will give you a sign. A sign of who I am and what I am bringing. A sign of the new superior covenant. So what does he use? Stone water pots that were used to purify. We could even note the fact that there were six of them is an incomplete, imperfect number of man. And he has them filled up, and the water is filled up to the very brim. So not only does this eliminate any chance of Jesus sneaking in a little wine powder and, and doing some sort of charlatry, but it also is absolutely filled, brimming, and abundant, the amount of water that is put into these vessels. The chief servant says that this wine is superior. The word meaning uh, beautiful or chiefly good, superior. And this was evidence or a symbol of who Jesus was. The verse 11 says it was the manifestation, right? He manifested or he displayed his glory. In the previous chapter in John 1, John would say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, right? John had just said, uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The only begotten. What does that phrase make you think of? When we hear the term, God's only begotten, 
One of the most popular Bible verses, John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this redemption that God is offering is not only a superior and better covenant for those that were Jews under the law. The Bible says that uh, when non-Jews, which is most of us here, uh, when non-Jews do anything right, when, when they do something that is good, they prove that they have the law in their hearts. The law, a consciousness of sin, an awareness of sin. So this redemption offered from is not just from the rules and regulations of the Old Covenant. It is from the guilt and awareness and consciousness of sin. So for those who have not entered into this new covenant, this this recognition of Christ's blood as the the payment uh, and the purification and the sanctification and the covering for our sins, the removal, the once for all removal of our sins, the only application is to come to Christ from this passage. is to come to Christ, to recognize our sinfulness, to recognize our inherent knowledge, the law in our hearts of guilt, and the law in our hearts of things, are, there are good and bad things in this world. Why is that? Because God's law is, is revealing that to our conscience. Is to come to Christ, to accept what Jesus has done on the cross through His blood, bringing in a new covenant. And once we have entered into that new covenant, uh, Hebrews has gone through this big list of the old had this, the new has this, the old has this, the new has this. And what does Hebrews conclude? Therefore, chapter 10, verse 19. Well, you can turn there. We'll be there for a, a moment now as we conclude. Hebrews 10. Verse 19. All of these... Lists and explanations of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, so because of all of this stuff, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another, uh, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So, why do we trust in the new covenant? In this passage, four things. From who comes the payment? Having the boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The payment is from Jesus. Who's our priest? By a new and living way he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a, a high priest over the house of God. Jesus is our priest. The purification. 
Let us draw near God with a true heart, full in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. The purification comes from Christ Jesus. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The payment, the priesthood, the purification, and the promise are all of the Lord Jesus, who proved himself over and over, a number of miracles, signs written in the book of John so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So what does Hebrews conclude? From this sign, Jesus beginning to point to his superior coming covenant. What does that mean for believers? This is what Hebrews is telling us. Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. We can come closely and directly to God. Jesus is now our intercessor. We come directly, we come closely, we come quickly. We closely come. How? With a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We come not only closely, but with complete trust. He who promised is faithful, and he proved it by evidence of who he is. And what does this mean for us practically day to day? That we can now clearly serve. Our consciences have been sprinkled, have been purified. Hebrews 9.14 says, The blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, uh, cleanses your conscience from dead works. Why? To serve the living God. We are not caught up and focused on trying to make ourselves pure. Our lives are not spent trying to earn God's merit or earn favor with God or or follow a set of rules so that we can be... uh, on display, whether it's a ritual cleanliness or before God... Our conscience, by the blood of Christ, is clean so that we can serve the living God. But it's not a selfish matter either. It says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, exhorting one another, right? To to compel one another. That with this glorious, well-founded, truth and reality, that we would compel each other and push each other on to serve the living God with our conscience now clean. And it says to uh, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So I said convene, just so I could have a fifth C. Closely coming, completely trusting, clearly serving, compelling each other, and convening together not forsaking the assembling of ourselves as is the manner of some, some, but so much more as you see the day approaching. So because of who this covenant is from, Hebrews says that we can uh, live a life that is close and intimate with God, serving Him freely with our conscience now cleared. Let's read those 11 verses again, and then we'll close in a word of prayer. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Back to John 2. Jesus' mother was there, 
And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you so much for your provision, for providing um, the perfect blood that could be offered once for all, the new covenant. Help us to buy that access with confidence, come to you uh, first and quickly with complete obedience in every situation. Help us to serve you, to use uh, the, the mind, the renewed mind, the clear conscience that you have bestowed on us uh, by our coming to the blood of Christ, that we would use that to serve you and to continue in some small way to manifest your glory for others through, through bringing glory to you. Help us to uh, not be isolated, but that we would encourage one another more and more as time goes on and as we see uh, history move towards its uh, pinnacle and its conclusions, that we would be all the more driven to serve you and to uh, gather as a body together to serve you here in this time that we have. Uh, And for anyone that has not understood or accepted the blood of Christ, that you would uh, use the law that is on their hearts to convict them, to bring them into a deeper awareness of their own uh, conscience of sin, that you would call them and draw them to yourself. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.